this is it. I have been so excited. I can't contain myself. I've been looking forward to this moment all week since we did our intro. We're doing episode one. We're talking about a film. It's actually happening. How do you feel, Nicola? <laughs> I'm excited, man. I'm, I'm equally excited. Equally excited. Wow, yeah. that is a stretch for you. <laughs> <laughs> I have to contain my excitement a little bit and I'm going to do the intro. Okay. Hello and welcome to Film Couch, episode one. In this episode, we're going to talk about Joker. I'm Joe, and on the other end of the couch is Nicola. What's up, folks? Let's get into this. <laughs> I'm so. <laughs> All right, guys, before we start, spoilers ahead. Joker, I'm getting excited again. We're going to talk about it. It's um, one of my favorite films, and I just want to kind of take take us back a little bit, Nicola, to yep. the, the, early, um, the early months of 2019. I think it was, that was when it was kind of, you know, it started generating a little bit of hype, um, little teasers and trailers coming out there. Uh-huh. And I remember um, my initial reaction was actually, really? Joaquin Phoenix? The Joker? What was your initial reaction to Joaquin Phoenix being cast? Dude, my, my reaction was a, little, uh, was a little ambivalent at first. Because, uh, I mean, for one, Joaquin Phoenix is uh, like one of the best actors of this generation. I think that's mm-hmm. like undeniable. And uh, I mean, I'm, 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 I was sure he could pull anything off, but it was ambivalent because of Todd Phillips mainly. I mean, it was it was hard for me to believe that like this type of movie with a, like an actor of such high caliber could be made by like the guy who made like the the Hangover movies. And I think like mo- a lot of people share that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. When I when I realized it's Todd Phillips directing it, you know, the guy who did the Hangover trilogy, yeah. I was like, is this? Is this a joke? A joke beyond <laughs> jokes? But um, interestingly as well, the producer was Bradley Cooper. Uh, yeah. Also from Hangover. He does a lot of film work outside of acting, right? Um, he started, well, he directed his, I, I think, it, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's like his, his first feature film as a director. Um, uh, it, was, it was also last year, was that, I think, uh, Star is Born? Yeah, um, with Lady Gaga. Exactly. And aside from that, I mean, I'm, I'm only guessing he like worked in the capacity of producer in this film because of his relationship with Todd Phillips. I mean, they've worked for like three films. Y- you can uh, like kind of say that Todd Phillips basically created the guy's career. So, mm. um, so I mean, it's, it's, it's understandable that they might have become like friends and like, like, I guess more so like creative acquaintances. And, and so uh, he like gave him the, like this sort of creative position, not much of a creative mm-hmm. position, but he did have input in the editing from what I've been, uh, from what I've read. So um, it's kind of no surprise that the guys uh, sort of work together in, in whatever form they, they see fit. Yeah, and, and, it, and it works, I guess. I mean, the, the question I, um, I started with here was, mm-hmm. you know, Joaquin Phoenix being cast. Yeah. And one, one of the realizations that I came to, because I, as I said, for me, it was like, really? And I wasn't that, um, that up to date 
or mm-hmm. I hadn't seen that much of Joaquin Phoenix's work. I've seen uh, Walk the Line, and yeah. I wish I could say that I've seen her, but I have seen okay. kind of excerpts of her, and mm-hmm. I see how phenomenal phenomenally is there, and we yeah. should definitely do her in, in a different episode. That would be great. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, also in, you know, Gladiator, and I knew he was a good actor. I did not know he was this good. <laughs> and what I realized was, and this kind of puts it all into perspective for me in terms of casting Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix was not cast as the Joker. Joaquin Phoenix was cast as Arthur Fleck. And that's a big difference to me. Mm-hmm. What's your name? Hi, Murray. Arthur? Arthur. My name's Arthur. Oh, okay. Well, there's something special about you, Arthur, I could tell. And Where it puts everything into, into perspective. Yeah. Um, so he lost 23 kilograms for the role. Mm-hmm. And method actors in particular are known for doing, you know, these kinds of things and um, crazy weight loss like that. But he's not a method actor. Did you know that? Uh, I don't know if it was in an interview or something like that. But yeah, I think he like he doesn't refer to himself as a method actor. Yeah. And one of the, you know, this is kind of, I shouldn't really say this and I feel bad about saying it. But one of the things that I was kind of excited about was... Mm -hmm seeing how the how playing you know the joker would have affected joaquin psychologically because you know mm-hmm. the joker has a history of affecting those who play it mm-hmm. um particularly in in the case of obviously heath ledger um not so much in the case of jared leo even though he really wished that it had <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he was really when he came into his first few interviews after the mm-hmm. after the release <clears throat> He was really, really down to earth. He put his weight back on and he was just so calm about the whole thing. And that, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. And that's just like, it's it's a true actor. It kind of changed my perspective a little bit on what acting is because I was really into this method acting, this idea of, you know, an actor locking themselves in a room for, for three months and, and becoming the person. But if you if you becoming the person, then is it really acting or is it, you know ruining your own identity for the role of a film but Joaquin he goes there shows up and he acts and he does it and that's what's great mm-hmm. to me uh yeah dude I I uh I mean we'll we'll definitely get into this as we like dive further into the into our opinions uh about the about the movie in general mm-hmm. I mean for me the, the saving grace of the film is is basically his performance what you said was really interesting, really, with the fact that, you know, in, in the beginning he was casted as, as this character called Arthur Fleck and not necessarily the Joker. Mm-hmm. I mean, not not so much in the sense that, I mean, and I'm not too keen on the, on the like, comic book, like, the history of the comic book character as a whole. Uh, so I don't know if he necessarily had, like, an original, like, I guess, like, pedestrian name, mm. uh, aside from his, his, uh, his alias of the Joker. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But uh, what is, well, I guess one of the things we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about further on is the fact that uh, he was actually very adamant about uh, just making a movie about the Joker. Like, he, he would have preferred in the beginning, I don't know if maybe now, for the movie to just have, like, I think it was, I, I read at one point where he just said he would have preferred the movie was just called Arthur, for example, and it had no connection whatsoever with uh, this, uh, you know, comic book character. Who, Joaquin or Todd? Joaquin, Joaquin. Ah, did not know that. 
I mean, there's there's talk that you know this guy carried the film, mm-hmm. and it's it's tough to say. We're, you know, we keep saying we're going to get into this. We're going to get into this. I've got a lot <laughs> of uh, things that I want to say about his performance. Yeah. Um, but something that I noticed on my third watch, and something that makes the film really unique, yeah. and uh, something that you said to me makes it. Um, you know, very similar to uh, Scorsese's Taxi Driver, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's called, right? Taxi Driver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just forgot the name for a second. Um, but yeah, the thing that makes it unique for me is that I don't think anyone can, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's not a single scene that he's not in. And that's really, really rare to see, I think. <laughs> is it? Um, yeah, I, I would, uh, I mean, uh, from, from anything that just comes quickly to mind, yeah, I think it's probably one of the, like, few examples, especially, like, these, you know, like, character-driven movies, like this, mm. uh, like, studies of one sole character, basically, which is what this movie is. Um, yeah, I think it would be one of the few examples where, again, the movie is so focused on, on, on focused on this character that he's, uh, he's, I mean... Not literally, but he's almost in every frame, even. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I I would say definitely like 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 you've mentioned that. Uh, I mean, he's Todd Phillips has said it before in plenty plenty interviews and and things like that that you know Taxi Driver was one of the main influences uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, in, in terms of just like the general ambiance and mood also also I guess the way like Scorsese depicts or or you know makes New York like a character within the movie itself mm-hmm. uh, as would Todd Phillips uh, as Todd Phillips would do I guess in the sense of Gotham City and Joker mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I, I would say that like if, if anything would come to mind as like one of the biggest inspirations of Taxi Driver and Joker it would be uh, precisely that I mean and there are many other things as well you know the, the character keeps a diary uh, yeah. there is uh, not necessarily voiceover because there's like a lot of that in Taxi Driver, but um, I guess he sort of plays around with that as well. Um, yeah, um, but a lot of kind of self-narration going on. I- exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is another big kind of anchor to the whole vibe of Joker, I think. And that's that's mm-hmm. one of the things that confused a lot of the viewers was this idea of self-narration. Because if he himself is an unreliable character, someone who's yeah. a little bit... Um, up and down a little bit sporadic then how come how this was one of the big discussion points and even todd phillips mentioned this how can we trust the narrative that we saw in front of us if it's all from his perspective um like you know uh sophie his his girlfriend played by zazie beats um who you know she existed she lived in the building but Mm -hmm. they never had a relationship exactly this building is so awful, isn't it? To me, you know, I would have liked to have seen that kind of played, that kind of aspect of this um, unreliable uh, narration. I would have loved to see a little bit more play on that, especially with the girlfriend thing. Mm-hmm. I would have loved loved it to be, and I think um, we were talking about this as we walked out of the cinema, um, it would have been nice if it wasn't so obvious, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are, um, yeah, my thoughts as well, man. Yeah, it, they could have really done a lot more with that. But, you know, I, I really, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the wrong podcast because I, I hate giving, whenever I give any kind of critique 
to a film. My mind just goes into how much work goes into a film and I just feel so bad critiquing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's why we're here. Um, Speaking of um, Sophie and the actress Sazie Beats, she's Mm -hmm. blowing up on Netflix these days. Atlanta, uh, amazing. If anyone hasn't seen Atlanta, the TV series on Netflix, you should watch that. Uh, She's been in something else recently. Do you know what it is? Uh, I know she was in Deadpool. I think she's yeah mm. she's in the second Deadpool, and uh, I mean she's great man. I loved her yeah. in Atlanta. Uh, I, I I mean Deadpool was was like a fun movie, and uh, I, I don't think I've seen her in anything else. But uh, I, I definitely hope they give her more work because she is uh, she's a. I mean she she plays interesting characters and she does it well so. Yeah, she's a really, really down-to-earth actress. And I think, I, I can't bring it up off the top of my head. I should have written it down, but I think she's mm-hmm. um, in something that's kind of up and coming, something big. Um, anyway. Was it like a TV show or movie? I think it was a film, yeah. I think. But we'll mm-hmm. see. This will this will come to me in time, I guess. Um, okay, so I'm going to bring up a point, something that I really, I think we should talk about this now before it gets too late. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the anchors, one of the most beautiful things about Joker, and I think you know what I'm going to say because I rave about this. What am I going to talk about? You're either going to talk about, uh, well, obviously about the music, or I'm guessing in your case, the photography. music for me you know it won awards hilda um can't pronounce her second name i apologize it's guanadotiti or something like that it's yeah um it's foreign so i can't say it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but she uh she won a golden globe for um best original Uh score uh, or best original soundtrack or something along those lines and i found myself after watching the film just listening Mm -hmm. to the the score itself just mm-hmm. kind of walking around. It's a bit of a strange thing to do because it's quite a heavy, uh, heavy <laughs> score. But um, it's yeah. just so beautiful and it kind of sticks with you and it anchors every scene. And one of the things that I wanted to mention about the music specifically was the process behind the music was very, very different to mm-hmm. what it usually is for film. Yeah. The, the music actually influenced the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, Hilda she'd read the script which also had a lot of changes to it as as they were filming so it was very you know it's it's an unreliable source to go off from the start but she she wrote Mm -hmm. the music based on the script she had a few uh you know a little bit of picture to go from but not much Mm -hmm. and the bathroom scene in particular my favorite scene um Mm -hmm. from what i've read joaquin was initially supposed to, in in the script, he was initially supposed to be looking into the mirror and showing remorse and saying, what have I done? Shaking, right? And imagine if that scene had been put in there like that. That would have really confused me. Yeah. Yeah, it would have changed the whole thing, uh, essentially. Exactly, yeah, because uh, he's, he's, you know, not showing remorse and that's what he's doing. Exactly. um, Throughout the whole film. And he actually was, I think it was the... He was listening to the music for the first time. Todd Phillips was showing him the music on set. And 
um, he just started dancing this dance. Yeah. And Todd was like, this is the scene, you know? Screw what was in the script. This is the scene. So that mm. he, the second time he danced to that music was the scene that you saw in the film. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, like, I mean, following that, it would, it would sort of give me more respect for Todd Phillips. <laughs> Especially in the sense of making, like, a judgment call like that, you know? Because, uh, and I think overall, like the like the most defining characteristic of a good director is uh, like having the criteria to make those decisions, even though yeah. they might be like out of place or not according to the script or anything like that. But just because you have that sort of, uh, I guess, calling it like good taste of knowing that that would go better with the story or with the like the character you're portraying. Yeah, absolutely, and being able to to adapt, you know, it mm-hmm. takes takes a big big person to change yeah. what you initially wrote because uh, you, know, you obviously spent a lot of time writing um mm-hmm. each individual scene so be able to just change change that on the fly that takes a, a lot of a lot of courage um yeah and it worked out so it's an amazing scene and i i really like the the camera work i remember this is quite a specific um point to make but i remember when I was watching the the camera move and the shot, I really, really wished it was all one shot in the in the bathroom scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it cut at a is moment it, where I was on the edge of my seat. Hmm? Is it not one shot? I haven't no, noticed. No, no, there are a few cuts. Um, uh-huh. it, it may be one shot, but it's definitely cut up. Yeah. Okay. It would have been nicer if it was if it was one shot. It would have made it more just a bit more natural for me. Okay. Um. So let's let's kind of transition over into photography. That was the the second thing we talked about there. Do you have anything mm-hmm. that you'd like to say about that? Maybe yeah, a couple of things that would come to mind. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't know, for example, that this movie that this uh, that this movie wasn't shot in digital. I and I sort of at first noticed that when we watched it at your place, because ah. uh, we watched it on a television, and. Uh, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I know all the like technical aspects behind this. But uh, when we watched it on your TV, it, there was a like there was a noticeable change in the sort of like frame rate that you'd mm-hmm. get at a normal movie theater. Uh, normal movie theater, and um, and uh, I mean, from my reminiscence, that sort of like uh, I guess like that sort of frame rate you you would only get it if you shot the movie in digital. I think again, someone correct me if I'm wrong. But I just, I just, I mean, that instantly brought it to mind, and I looked it up, and uh, and yeah, apparently it was shot with with a digital camera, and uh, of course I was, like at, at first I was kind of confused because from everything like I've been hearing or reading about Todd Phillips on making the movie is that he wanted to give it like a real like 1970s vibe. I mean, not mm. only from the influence of the movies like he's he specifically mentioned, but also. Um, but also because I mean the movie is like set in the eighties and I just I just thought it was like why didn't the guy shoot in film? Yeah. And uh, he's he said I mean f- he went he went around with this with this uh, photographer his his name is uh, Larry Sher, uh who sh- I think shot most of his movies with him and they went around the I think I don't know what city they were in they probably New York and uh, shooting with a couple of like uh, I think it was like like a 35 millimeter film camera 
and uh, making a couple of tests with the, with this uh, digital camera they shot the movie with. Um, and they just they, they at the end they loved the look of the of the digital camera. It was that, and also like uh, I guess the decision partly by the studio because the studio like from the beginning they weren't like uh, they weren't really enthusiastic about the movie and putting a lot of money behind it. And obviously, film is like a more expensive uh, um, resource than than digital. Mm -hmm. A medium so to shoot. So it was kind of like yeah. a. Exactly. It was kind of like a happy compromise, I guess, in the end. He, he made a couple of tests with a digital camera, he liked the results, and then he chose that. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I normally wouldn't have much of, a, of an issue with that, but I guess just when I saw it on the TV, it, 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 it was more noticeable and really, I guess, a little, uh, like a little off for me. Yeah, a bit more kind of artificial for, yeah. what, for, what, you're, for what he's trying to mm -hmm. convey. I'd have to but, kind of put put them next to each other because tarantino shoots in film all, all the time doesn't he yeah he's like part of a legion of directors most of whom are from his same generation but a lot of them are also like older directors who who, who just like stand by film i guess mm. uh, until the end so, I, um, I can't say that i would have noticed that so that's a good observation yeah so it, it was um kind of a style choice as well as a bit of a budget choice yeah, it was a style choice. I mean, from from what I remember, he actually wanted to shoot the movie with like the with a with a in a sixty five millimeter format, which is like I think the same format that Tarantino's been been using for his last couple of movies. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, you know, there has a I guess, I, it it gives it a, a I guess uh, gives him a, a lot of other options in terms of like the depth of field and and and, and the sort of shots he would be able to make with that, and in a sense the camera he used is the equivalent of that because I think like a film camera and um, a, a film camera that shoots in sixty five millimeters there are only like a couple uh, that I mean a couple in general that directors use and pretty much when like a couple of when some directors are using those cameras I mean they're not available to anybody else who wants to make a movie with that camera. Uh, wow, a couple as in a couple of units rather yeah. than a couple of models or brands. Exactly. So from wow. what I understood is that he wanted to use those cameras, and I'm guessing well, one thing was like the studio not backing him up on that, and the other thing was that I think it was like Sam Mendes, maybe, using one for like the, the new James Bond, and I think Christopher Nolan was using the other for, uh, for I think, Tenet, his new movie. That is... That is unbelievable i yeah. would never have imagined that there were, there were there were a few cameras that directors shared among each other that is amazing i mean it's just that film format because it's uh, i guess yeah. more uh not many people make movies with them nowadays i don't know if it's like because the older cameras just like they're broken down and nobody's ever repaired them or they yeah. just don't make cameras like that anymore i mean i know that like the, the camera they used to make i think it was like 2001 a space odyssey which is a movie from like 69 68 uh, I think they used yeah. it for a couple of movies after that, and they probably still use it every now and then. But I mean, those things are like more so than like the value they have as like as objects. Uh, I think they probably just have like a more of like a national treasure. <laughs> yeah, of, like of, a sentimental. This this camera Ex shot this film. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm guessing like I don't know who the owner of those cameras is, but I'm guessing there's like a, a certain special requirements <laughs> to to be able to use those cameras. But again, that I mean, is amazing. I'd be glad uh, if any uh, if any of our listeners could give us more info on that.
Yeah, yeah. And we'll be pro- providing an email address at the end so people can uh, can write into us. Wow, that's interesting. Well, you know what? I'll um I'll give a little observation in terms of the um not so much the the photography, I guess, but more the the color. I'm not sure if they're in yeah. the same vein. Um Of course. Now, this is a really kind of far-fetched observation and yeah. you don't have to take this seriously, but <laughs> I kind of noticed in a, in a few scenes that there were these two contrasting colors and these colors kind of run throughout the whole of the film. Yeah. Um, and those colors were a really kind of like a golden kind of orange, mm-hmm. like a brownish kind of orange and a, a kind of greenish teal color. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed in a particular scene when um, Arthur Fleck, Joaquin Phoenix, is talking to Sophie, uh, Zazie, Zazie Beats, um, and, and she stood in the hallway and he stood in his apartment. Oh, hey. Hey. Are you following me today? Yeah. He has this, this green light on his face and the background's orange, whereas she has this orange light on her face and the background's yeah. green. And I noticed this in a few other scenes and I thought maybe this is a play on, you know, this greenness connoting kind of evil or kind of a decrepitness or something like that. Something that's a little bit, um, you know, bad, something that's not good. Yeah. Whereas the orange is the opposite. And when I was, when, when I kind of had this in my head and I was, you know, had, kept looking out for it, I noticed that in the scene where Arthur's, Arthur's mom, Penny, Penny Fleck, mm-hmm. played by Frances Conroy. She was, uh, she's in the bath and she, while he had, I believe his face was green. Yeah. She had half, half orange and green on her face. Happy, what makes you think you could do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you have to be funny to be a comedian? And... You know, if this is intentional, you know, probably yeah. not. It's just an, ob- <laughs> an observation that I saw. But um, what's interesting about that is the kind of the the indecisiveness that we have on 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 Penny's character, mm-hmm. um, because you know, do we trust the narrative that we see? Is she really yeah. this? Because you know, ultimately, she's this uh, mm-hmm. this child abuser who uh, did a lot of awful stuff. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. I don't know what you think about that. <laughs> no, I. Uh... Well, I, I have to admit, man, like at first when you pointed that out, uh, specifically the scene where he's, <laughs> where he receives Sophie, he opens the door and she's there right in the, uh, like in the threshold of the door and they're sort of like flirting. Well, within, you know, in his imagination, as we learn after in the mm-hmm. movie. And, uh, and you have like this reflection on his face, which is just like the light hitting his face from the, from the hallway. And it's sort of like a like a teal sort of like a like a shade of teal i guess mm-hmm. and then we have the reflection in her face um uh whenever we're looking at her and she has like a like a greenish no sorry like an orangish uh sort of uh shade in her face right mm-hmm. from the light of the interior of 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 Arthur's room or living room and uh, and yeah you you made the comment that in your opinion it was sort of like a I mean, there were there was certain uh, there was a certain meaning to the use of light and color in in, in that scene, and uh, I just uh, I just attributed it to the fact <laughs> that, that that was because 
the light was reflecting on each of their faces and the light in his room was different from the light in the hallway. <laughs> but, however, yeah. I think I might have to, uh, to give you some props on that observation because, um, I mean, definitely throughout the whole movie, there's like, uh, there's like a very stark contrast between the, the use of orange and the use of blue, basically. And uh, they most they, they mostly do it in, in these you know like wide open shots when you see like the like the separation of Arthur with this environment you know he's like a yeah. small figure with this like expanse of I don't know whether it's his living room or the city or the back of the bus but you know they sort of like make him an inferior figure within the shot also kind of going with the fact of why they shot with like a the sixty five millimeter version of a digital camera because it gives him that sort of um, aspect ratio. Yeah, and uh, uh, but the thing is, yeah, I mean, noticing the use of color throughout the whole movie, and specifically those two colors or those two, I guess, uh, those two tones. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't take it like as a bad observation, uh, specifically for that scene. Um, so um, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely more to look into that. I mean, in terms of the intention of the of the. In this case, of the of the DP as well as the director, of what they wanted to sort of portray in those scenes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you can at least acknowledge my <laughs> observation because <laughs> I thought it was a little bit um, out of the box. You know, I'm I'm new at this, and I feel I do feel a little bit self conscious and a little bit insecure when I make observations like these because I think maybe um, it's just silly talk, but. You mentioned the living room, and I want to go back mm -hmm. to that. Okay. There is a scene in the living room where he he just got the gun off um, Randall. Randall yeah. gave him the gun when he's in the the locker room of um, mm -hmm. is it called Ha Ha's where he works? Uh, yeah, I believe it's Ha Ha's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he's in the living room, and on the TV there's a song playing. It's um it's called Slap That Bass, and it's from 1937. It's Fred Astaire. And I decided to look this up because I thought, you know, this can't just be a random selection. It has to mean something. And what's, what strikes me is the lyrics of this song. Mm -hmm. There's a particular section of the song that says... The world is in a mess with politics and taxes and people grinding axes. There's no happiness. Obviously, you know, that's an obvious kind of link to Joker and the narrative. And mm -hmm. um, it's it's not, that, um, not yeah. that interesting. But I think the fact that the, the way in which this song is sung and the way that the, the song sounds, it yeah. has this kind of mask of happiness. And all of mm -hmm. the people that are singing the song and dancing are all smiling and dancing. And it's a really, really jovial song. And I think mm -hmm. that's just an interesting song choice to, um, to kind of reflect the juxtaposition that we see in Joker constantly, this kind yeah. of forceful happiness against, you know, a real um, serious issue that, that lies beneath. What do you think? Yeah, um, yeah I, I, uh, <clears throat> I didn't know what song it was playing. I mean, I just saw, uh, it just, it just sounded kind of like a funny song. I didn't, uh, was that Fred Astaire? You, you're talking Fred about Astaire, the scene where the, yeah. where the gun goes off, right? Yeah, where he shoots the gun into the wall. Exactly. Okay. 
Yeah, I didn't know that was. I mean, I might have seen Fred Astaire there. I just I didn't really even notice the lyrics. I mean, now that you point them out, yeah, like you said, it's 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 pretty obvious the way they chose it. I mean, it's uh, you can see how it was intentional. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, there there is sort of like uh, in a sense, like the the whole movie or the the whole like the whole arc of Arthur as a character and like his turn into the the Joker near the end of the movie is um i would say it's like uh it's sort of showing like man uh but not in his natural state which is why he's like so unhappy and you know he's uh he's just a miserable character overall and i guess they mm -hmm. they use the in, in in that sense they use the stairs to symbolize like that long uh that long climb up of of just like an unhappy and unsatisfied life mm -hmm. and uh and uh near the end Yeah, like you said, they juxtapose it with the idea that uh, that he's finally found some type of freedom, uh, and uh, in in not necessarily in these violent acts, but at least in 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 the instances where he's where he reacts uh, reacts much differently to how he was uh, accustomed. Uh, mm -hmm. Hence, you know, the going down the stairs in such a happy state because we finally see him in his natural state. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I think at least in terms of that, that, in, in terms of, uh, of like that meaning behind the character and the story, that was, that was well developed to, to a certain extent. Uh, but yeah. I think there are a lot of things which just, uh, like a lot of decisions narratively, that, uh, that sort of demolish a lot of the things that he was building up with the character. I would love to know more about that because I have something similar that I think I'd like to say, but I'd love to hear your take on that. I mean, like I, like I mentioned in the beginning, I think Joaquin Phoenix is like by far the best thing about the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't think Todd Phillips, you know, did as bad as I would have imagined when first hearing about the movie. I think he did a, he did a decent job, but, but the fact of the matter is it's, it's one of those movies where like after I come out of the theater, I'm just sort of pissed. Because I realized that it had like a lot of potential and it could have been so much better. This uh, is how you felt after after watching Joker. Yeah, that that's one of the things I felt, and uh, I mean, it, it usually happens with like a movie that's like almost really good, but because of certain um, like uh, certain decisions made by the director and the creative team, it, it just sort of loses that. Uh, Uh, I guess the chance to, I don't know, necessarily go on the pantheon of like great movies or greatest movies ever made, but like at least of mm -hmm. becoming like a solid work of art. And uh, yeah. in, in in my sense, I mean, in in my opinion, some of those things were like the like the creative choices in terms of like making it making his uh, like telling the audience like in a very blatant way that his illusions were just uh, that that his delusions were just delusions, you know. And right, not leaving it up to like ambiguity, exactly, or not necessarily ambiguity, but not leaving it up to you know like uh, like the general audience member to come up with that solution on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms with with uh, in this case with the flashbacks and things like that, I mean, I thought the ending yeah was like a little bit silly at first, <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, after watching the movie a couple of times, not only did I think it was silly, but I just think that if the movie ended. With, the sh with that one shot after he gets on top of the car, 
and you know he raises his arms and he forces that smile upon himself once again because he's done it at the very beginning of the movie I think that would that, I think that would have just been a phenomenal bookend for the movie itself man I think Absolutely. he, he should have just put you know credits the end and and ended it that way I I mean and, and again from um, from what I saw like in, in the initial script I think the movie started with like the with the conversation with the therapist mm -hmm. or the the social uh, the social services worker who's talking to him uh, but then he changed it I'm guessing you know in editing he saw that it would just start better off with that one like uh, slow tracking shot towards him sitting and enforcing that smile mirror. upon himself I mm -hmm. thought that was a good choice. And if he kept that in the beginning and he ended it with him just getting on top of the car with that f***ing beautiful shot, because I, I, I did love that f***ing shot. That was phenomenal. Uh, of him, like, again, putting that smile in his face, turning around and everybody, like, clapping. And it would just end like that. I think that would have just been a great ending. That's, but you, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but you get those, like, quirks from, you know, a, a director who's used to making, like, I guess conventional comedies or conventional like narratives, and he's just like, no, I gotta put this one thing with Frank Sinatra, and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm 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 really with you there on 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 the ending being a little bit kind of ridiculous and and ruining mm -hmm. um, what what had been set up. I am with you there. I'm I'm only with you if my theory of, theory of the whole film isn't true. Because I have this theory wherein the mm. last scene does make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but before I go into that, uh -huh. I just want to say um, one of the things, because we're talking about, you know, the inconsistencies in, in yeah. what went on. One of the things that I thought was inconsistent, and, you know, maybe I'm reading into this the wrong way, but he's unnecessarily, in my opinion, self-aware of his own mental illness. I would have loved it if he was just a little bit less self-aware. Um, mm. It would have created a bit more eeriness in the character, a little bit more uncertainty mm. and ambiguity. Mm. Um, he was definitely unpredictable, but I think just another level of unpredictability in, in, in terms of you know his lack of self-aware and who he was would have been nicer. Now, I'm going to back this up. Mm. He writes in his, in, his, um, in his little book there, yeah, and he says this joke on stage. I just wish my death makes more sense than my life. Sense yeah. spelled C E N T S, like like mm -hmm. money. I just hope my death makes more sense than my life. Which mm -hmm. is um, a decent pun, and it shows that his life to him is confusing. He's not sure who he is. Is you know he, he doesn't have he can't kind of place his identity. Uh, yeah. And this is this is a great line. I think it's good, um, and and along with the rest of the film, you know, the the way that he behaves definitely shows that he is uh, he he does lack that self awareness of his own mental uh, stability mm -hmm. because he he you know he creates these narratives and things happen differently to how we see them. But mm -hmm. there's this one other line that he writes in his book that kind of ruins that that setup for me, and that's. The line, um, what does it say now? It says... Is it something like... Uh, I don't know what you're talking about because I think it's only like two lines in the whole movie that you actually mm -hmm. get to... Like, he, he either reads them out loud or you actually get to see them uh, yeah. like noticeably on the paper. Yeah. Uh, so do you think you can guess what it is? 
it's something about the mental illness thing. It's uh, like if people, the the like the worst thing about a men, having a mental illness is uh, people expecting you to behave as if you don't. Yeah, it was something like that. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. The worst part about having a mental illness is yeah. people expect you to behave as if you don't. Now, mm -hmm. this is a profound quote about mental illness and yeah. it's, it, you know, it highlights the stigma of mental illness in today's society. And it's a fantastic quote, but I don't think Arthur Fleck would have come up with that. Do you know what I mean? It ruins that yeah. illusion of, of being not aware of oneself and being lost mm. in yourself because that to me shows okay i'm arthur fleck i know that i'm mentally unstable and i just want to be able to act that way and not have anyone pick me up on that and that's not at all who, who his character is to me yeah uh, so mm -hmm. no i uh at, at least well i mean i'd have to give it more thought in terms of the line and, and whether that would be something that he could come up with I mean, mm -hmm. I, but, but I do think you bring up a good point because one of the things that I think would help the story, which, again, in my opinion, is not necessarily like a very solid story to begin with. But one of the things that would help it at least is to have him like not only be an, I mean, he's an unreliable narrator mm -hmm. in, in, in not in the sense that that he's like willing to lie to the audience or well, in general, but he's an unreliable narrator because he doesn't even know if whatever's happening is true or not mm -hmm. and uh i think in, in in that sense at least um yeah it, for one i mean one it would be i think it would be uh it would have helped the character in the story if he would have been i guess if they were if they would have created more uncertainty for him mm -hmm. in general in regards to the the things happening around him and also because it, it sort of goes also into that um into the scene where he breaks into well he doesn't break into but he goes into uh, i think it's uh, gotham general hospital or something like that he goes into like the lunatic uh, asylum of, of gotham Sorry. and he just you know steals the papers no man come on man And it's just like when he sees those papers and you see, again, in my opinion, like that unnecessary flashback and him like being behind, just like looking over, which I, I just thought wasn't like a good choice. But when you see him, he reads that and then he's like completely sure that the paper is telling the truth. I, I, I also thought, I mean, I, I thought that was, that was uh, not necessarily true to his character, but also, uh, I mean, it would have been a lot better if he had had the same uncertainty that I guess a lot of people would. I mean, the f because the fact is that you get the, you're given the idea that, Tom, that Thomas Wayne is like a very powerful man. I mean, think of him as like a modern day million, billionaire, but in that time, I guess millionaire. I mean, people in powerful positions can, they, they can make any type of information and papers appear, man. I mean, the, that's true. That's very true. Yeah. They have the power to do so. So, I mean, and obviously that's why they hinted in the end with the photograph of, you know, with uh, like sort of like a love message from him to Penny and like his initials. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they give it that ambiguity in the end. But I mean, for Arthur to read that piece of paper and believe it instantly and then kill his mom, uh, I just thought they could have uh, developed that a little bit better than him just like believing it 100% and, and, and uh, acting upon it as if it yeah. was, you know, like 
Yeah, I think so. I don't think that it was a good way for him to react to the whole situation because that's a very normal, obviously not not killing your own mother, but a very very normal person's (laughs) reaction is to be very angry with with their parent. But Mm -hmm. he's obviously really close to his mom. And yeah, as you said, for him to read this on a piece of paper and say, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, that that I'm going to kill her. That's really, really, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's really, it doesn't make sense. Um, It would have been better, I think. You know, again, I'm going, uh, I'm going to say it's, (laughs) who am I to say it would have been better? But I would have enjoyed it more if, um, Mm -hmm. if he would have been just, if that would have just sent him into another confused spiral of, I don't know who I am and what's going on rather than, oh, wow, she did that. I'm going to kill her, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. A friend I had suggested that it would have been more true to his character if he had like tortured her. <laughs> I don't know if like to that extreme, but at least you know showing that uncertainty in him, you know whether that was true or not, and trying to find a way to to make sure of it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think yeah, knowing Arthur, it would have been it would have made sense for him to try and get her to tell him whether it was true or not. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that would have made more sense. Um, so. I kind of went on a bit of a long segue there when I was uh, going to talk about the big illusion of of the film when you mentioned the end scene. And mm-hmm. I do agree that it was ridiculous. It threw me off. It didn't feel right until I saw some YouTube videos, <laughs> read some, you know, some brainwashing yeah. material post, yeah. post viewing of, of the film. And, you know, people have probably already heard this theory, but is it all made up? Now, the more that I think about that, the more it excites mm. me and the more that I wish it were true. And mm. I think it could possibly be true. And I think the only thing that, that is real is that last scene and that could be why it is there and why it's so important and it's it's own it's it's not all real that last scene i think the only real part is where he's sat in the um the room the at the end yeah and you know it starts playing he starts singing that's, that's life, life. That's life. And he says the final line, you you wouldn't get it. And I think that the whole film is in his head in that moment, in that room. He just plays it all out. Mm -hmm. And there's something that I noticed. There's a microphone on the table at the end. Now, to me, I think enclosed room, you know, interrogation confession maybe is it all made up did he do something you know it's really it's really really hard and i wish that um todd phillips would give us answers he said he's mm-hmm. gonna give give answers and idea of a sequel's being thrown around which is something i want to ask you mm-hmm. but um i guess what i'm trying to say is i believe that it the whole thing more or less is made up in his own head and it's kind of a way for him maybe he did have a tough life maybe yeah. some of it which were true and, and some of it was true and some of it um he's really really blown out of proportion and, and my, my my theory of this is that 
every time something bad happens to him or every time he brings up uh, a, a suppressed, repressed memory of mm-hmm. something bad that happened to him, he throws in a, a badass um, memory. He creates this badass memory where he, mm-hmm. you know, fought back against it. And maybe that's his way of dealing with with the yeah. um, tough life that he's had. It's, I'm, I'm not 100% clear on that theory. It's mm-hmm. just something that I think makes sense but i still want yeah i still want todd and, and joaquin to to, <laughs> to tell me what 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 happens in joker what do you yeah. think about that um i'll tell you this man one of the like one of the few batman comics i've read and and this is like widely regarded by many to be like one of the best batman comic books of all time and just one of the best comics maybe i mean that's up to opinion, but uh, one of the best comics I've read is is one called one written by Alan Moore, uh, called The Killing Joke. <clears throat> and from from my understanding, like this comic has been like very influential in in the majority of the Batman movies uh, that have come out. You know, ever since it's had like a like a depiction in, in film. And um, I, I guess more so in like Christopher Nolan's version, and now in Todd Phillips' version. And and the the I guess the one of the like most appealing aspects of the way the character is developed in this in this comic book, which is just like a one-off, just like one story, one one issue, is where the character of the Joker says that um, he's finally caught by Batman in the end, after you know causing mischief and I think I forgot if he kills anybody, but yeah. You know, it's, it's the whole classic Batman chases Joker story. Mm-hmm. Batman finally catches him in the end. Uh, from what we can gather, it leaves, leaves it a little bit ambiguous, but from what we can gather, Batman actually kills the Joker in the end. But before that, the Joker like, actually makes a joke. <laughs> you know, it's funny. This reminds me of a joke. At the end of the comic book. Mm-hmm. Batman starts laughing with him, the Joker laughs, <laughs> and Batman chokes him and kills him. Also, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the comic. <laughs> I think you're supposed to say that before you. <laughs> what was Put the it joke? In the description. Um, the joke was that um, he says that there are like two prison inmates, uh, just sort of like talking. Uh, I think during like their break, and they're just talking about like uh, they're coming up with a way to escape the prison. And I think the prison is sort of like an Alcatraz type of prison where they're like, uh, it's like in an island and, you know, there's just a sea around it and there's really no way to escape. So they, they talk to each other and they're like, you know, how can we escape? And one of them says, uh, well, you know what? I can uh, I can turn on a flashlight and uh, and I'll light it across the across the sea and you can walk on the beam and get to the shore. And then the other inmate laughs, like in like a maniacal way, and says, "You know, you're crazy. How could I believe you? You would turn off the flashlight before I even get to the shore." But the second guy says, "What do you think I am? Crazy? You just turn it off when I'm halfway across." Something like that. That's like my abbreviated version. But uh, but I mean, the, the, the thing joke. is, one, the 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 comic ends with a joke, which is I think what sort of Todd Phillips was trying to do here. I yeah. mean, obviously in like a darker way because the joke is that you know. Batman's parents are killed, and that's how he becomes the Batman. Uh, but the other thing, and one of the like most peculiar features of the character and how he's developed in this comic, is that he says that uh, I mean, you, you you see like different 
origin stories for the character within the same comic. And then in the end, I, I forgot who asks him, whether it's, uh, I think, uh, uh, what's the name of the lieutenant in the Batman stories? Gordon? Lieutenant Gordon? Oh, I think it's Gordon. I, I, yeah. I haven't followed Batman DC or anything that much. It's either either him or Batman who tells him, like, you know, I, I, I forgot, but they, like, they try to fact check the story, and he says, you know, I, I prefer my origin to be multiple choice. If I'm going to have a past... I prefer it to be multiple choice. So, I mean, that's something that they followed with Heath Ledger's Batman and Joker, and that's something that, I mean, uh, if, if your theory's right, that they'll probably do with this one as well. If maybe, like, the second movie comes out, and, you know, he's uh, all of that was just in his head, and maybe it wasn't even true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That would be really, really interesting for me. If, if you know, when the sequel comes, it's just... Um, you know, it starts again. Maybe it starts from that scene, and we learn that it was all um, in the past. I mean, all all made up. Yeah. And then where would it go from there? It's interesting. So, so talking of sequels, that was one of my questions. Um, is mm-hmm. is there definitely going to be be a sequel then? I mean, Todd Phillips has been very coy about it, man. Yeah. But uh, Todd Phillips is also a man who made a bunch of money out of the first. Uh, <laughs> hangover movie (laughs) and he's made two after that and uh i mean the joker in terms of like box office success that it was i mean it's it it, it's definitely admirable because that movie costed like less than 50 million dollars it was like a huge risk for this well it wasn't a huge risk for the studio it was a risk because again they didn't put that much that big of a budget in it but it was like i guess a risk career wise yeah and he's made more than a billion dollars off of that budget so so yeah, yeah, I, I think but, he would be uh, pretty open to the idea. Yeah, but I don't think Joaquin would follow him if he were just in it for the money. Joaquin wouldn't do that. Well, that's yeah, that's at least one thing we have in our favor that uh, we know at least Joaquin would follow something that is uh, truly interesting to him yeah. and like creatively appealing. So if he were to do anything, at least we have that. Uh, that safe judgment by Hawking, <laughs> where he would do yeah. something he would be passionate about. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, that answers my sequel question. I had another couple of questions I just wanted to kind of fly past you before mm-hmm. we round it off. Do you think Joker, Arthur, is the mm-hmm. Joker? Uh, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. I think, uh, I mean, I think a lot of it depends on the sequel. And I think if they do make a sequel, mm-hmm. they, they will pretty much clear that up. Uh, unless it's going to be a trilogy <laughs> unless it's a, tr- a trilogy and they they hire like the that, that chinese guy from the hangover <laughs> <laughs> gay <laughs> yeah yeah well i don't know if we'll cut that out um <laughs> okay all right um and I think I think that was all my questions. There, there was one kind of you know deeper question that I had, and it's probably one that would take a longer, um, you know, a, a lot more time, and we're already going on quite a bit. But this idea that stems from Joker, yeah, is essentially the way that it translates into the real world. Is pe- people feel a lot of empathy for Arthur, mm-hmm. and is that a good thing because it's it's this this kind of meme mm-hmm. that is society made me this way 
It's this excuse that it gives people. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think I can even, be, you know, we can even start this discussion, but um, just just give me a yes or no. Can you blame society for your actions as the Joker does? Or as, sorry, as Joker does without the definite article? Um. <laughs> it's a loaded that's a, question. That's a good question to put in the end, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I, I don't know if, if the Joker... I mean, yeah, again, that's a tough question, dude. I, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, uh, that people should blame their actions on society. I mean, I think that uh, that all of it is human nature, really. But a character like Joker, specifically... I would just uh, attribute it to, uh, to to I guess society and bad luck. <laughs> yeah, tough break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's a big question. It depends on you know it has mm-hmm. different. It depends on the circumstance. But you know, I'm not I'm not saying that it it you know anyone who does anything wrong can blame society. But I'm saying that people. I think one of the things that people would be able to take from this film is to not judge people so quickly, particularly those who maybe have a kind of mental illness. Because again, mm-hmm. it's tough, I imagine, to have a mental illness in even today's society. Um, much, you know, much, much, much worse, you know, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years ago. But um, it's tough, and I think people should just be a little bit more um, respondent, a bit more aware of mental illness around the world and try not to mm-hmm. be a part of its stigmatization, I think. Anyway, that was mm-hmm. – I thought I'd have more time to go into that with you, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> um, I just had a, I had two questions for you. I hope the first one will be just quick. Sure. Uh or, I mean, you, you can obviously uh, give as much as you'd like, but I was really interested in your input for this. I mean, I know, for one, that you love the score of the movie. Yeah. But I wanted to know your take specifically on the use of music in general. And that's to say, not only the, the score that was composed for the, for the movie uh, in particular, but also uh, the, I think it might be, I mean, with exception to the song that plays on the TV, but uh, I guess I'm, I'm mostly referring to I guess the song uh, "That's Life" by Frank Sinatra and uh, yeah, the other okay. Kareem song, um, uh, whose name I forget. Yeah, yeah. I actually really liked mm-hmm. a lot of the the music choices, um, but there was one music choice, one song choice that I wish wasn't there, and it's you know ironically one of the. Um, most popular scenes was the the Gary Glitter mm-hmm. song, and yeah, I mean, why would why would you do that? Why would you put a Gary Glitter song in a in a in a film? Um, but I think mm-hmm. apart from apart from that one, uh, the fr- Frank Sinatra, that kind of uh, you know thirties, forties, fifties vibe that resonates throughout really works mm-hmm. for me, and it really helps to set that kind of vintage New York tone throughout. And uh, and the second question I had, uh, I guess, sort of like a, c- kind of going along with the idea of a, well, not necessarily the sequel, but 
the the movie's chances in the future. I mean, I for one hope they don't do a sequel. Um, <laughs> but but uh, in the event that they don't, how do you think the movie will fare in, in time? Do you think it will uh, it will still be in people's heads? Do you think its performance will still uh, sort of resonate uh, in the years to come? Will people still find it like a polarizing movie all around? Uh, and and I guess will it become that much of a, I guess of a symbol, as uh, in terms of like comic book movies or maybe more if you'd like to put it that way, as uh, like Christopher Nolan's trilogy has. That's it's a really good question. And if if you would have if you would have asked me as I was walking out of the cinema, I would have said absolutely mm-hmm. hands down, no doubt, this one's going down in history. But. <laughs> The more that I've kind of distanced my, myself from the film, um, I think there has been a lot of hype around it. I've never mm. seen so much, you know, YouTube content about a movie before, uh, during, and and after release. Yeah. Um, so many, you know, theories and maybe, maybe well, you know, maybe it's my YouTube algorithm because <laughs> I'm I'm searching that and it's been targeted, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I think I think it does have a lot of interest right now. I don't think it's going to last as long as some of the greats do. So I do think it will die yeah. out. And I'm you know what? I'm kind of with you on that I hope that there isn't a sequel. But I hope that Todd and Joaquin do an exclusive on, you know, just just explanations and and giving me, you know, giving me my answers. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, actually, contrary to what I would have said maybe even weeks ago, um, I think it's, it's a a lot of hype. Yeah. A lot of deserved hype. Great marketing. Joaquin, amazing performance. Oh, we didn't talk much about Joaquin's performance, but absolutely incredible performance. Um, But yeah, I don't think it's one of the greats. Is there anything else you want to say to sign us off before I go into some some um, closing notes? No, nothing to add. Just uh, whoever's listening, if you're willing to fact check everything I've said, uh, <laughs> please don't be too harsh on me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> we should have a disclaimer at the beginning. We yeah. don't really know what we're talking about. <laughs> cool. All right, so um, I'd just like to reiterate to uh, to the listeners, you can email us any ideas, suggestions, um, or even any films that you'd love uh, love us to talk about in the future. And the email address is filmcouchpodcast at gmail.com. Filmcouchpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. There's no underscore or hyphen or anything like that. Um, and in the next episode, uh, Nicola and I have already decided what we are going to talk about. It's uh, a film that I really like, and that's all I can say for now. And um, what is it, Nicola? <laughs> uh, we have chosen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, we have. By Quentin Tarantino. Yes, we have. So we hope we can uh, we can have a, a good meaty discussion oh yeah uh, by next week yeah absolutely so that was our discussion of joker thank you very much for listening uh it is goodbye from me and it's goodbye from nicola bye everyone <laughs> and just remember guys that's the-
That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June. I said that's life.